everyone. Welcome back to Addicted to Crime. My name is Shelby Nakey. This episode is going to be releasing on Valentine's Day, and I just wanted to do a special episode in light of the celebration of love. I'll be dropping a few cases that are super bloody and super gruesome that happened on or around the special holiday. I want to leave you with an important sidebar before I begin. My goal with this entire podcast is never to romanticize the killings or glorify the murders. Absolutely not. My goal is to give all the attention to the victims and survivors of these harrowing crimes, as well as to remind the public to stay safe. I am and always have been fascinated with the psychology of these crimes. The why? What caused the criminal to snap? I just need to dive into cases. However, it's important for us to keep in mind that it's not just a crazy case to read about or listen to or research. It's someone's family, and we need to be respectful of the family and their tragic losses. It's important that we remember to watch out for the worst of humanity on a day that we celebrate love and happiness. Let's begin. The first Valentine's killing that I want to cover is the case of Dr. John Hamilton and his wife, Susan Hamilton. Now, on the outside, it's easy to think that people have the perfect life. Now, especially since we have social media and are scrolling through everyone's picture-perfect algorithms. We might see the happy couple, the perfect couple, the oh-so-in-love couple. But our perception isn't always accurate. It's just that, perception. That was the case in John and Susan's marriage. The couple met in 1985, and after a whirlwind relationship, they soon married only two years later. It was love at first sight. While I was researching this case, I came upon some wedding photos, and Susan had the biggest smile on her face in her wedding dress. She looked beautiful, and both of them looked so happy. John doted on his bride and spoiled her. He brought her a Porsche on her wedding day for a gift, and they spent the 14 years they were together by taking expensive vacations, and they had a beautiful home that they shared. John had an OBGYN practice in Oklahoma City, and he was very popular and well-known in the medical field. However, with that popularity, there was some hatred as well. In addition to delivering babies in his clinic, John also performed abortions, and from that arose many protesters and pro-life and anti-abortion groups. John and Susan also even received death threats from the extremist groups, and John's face even appeared on a wanted poster from these extremists. Susan worked part-time at the clinic and loved being near her husband. They would take lunch breaks together, and John would call his wife many times throughout the day to check on her when they were apart. Now, on Valentine's Day, February 14, 2001, in the morning, something happened that no one saw coming, and it shocked the entire community. John arranged for a huge, beautiful bouquet of red orchids to arrive at his home to surprise his wife that day. Now, Dr. John Hamilton had a surgery that morning, and the clinic where he was doing surgery was only about 25 minutes from their home. After the surgery, he left and said he forgot his appointment book, and so he had to go back to home, get it, and bring it back before his next surgery. When he walked in the door of their home, he called out to his wife, and there was no answer. And when he walked into the couple's bathroom, he said he discovered his 55-year-old wife, Susan Hamilton, lying on the bathroom floor, covered in blood. She had been strangled with two of John's ties, and her face had been so badly beaten that part of her brain was exposed. She was laying in a pool of blood. According to what he told the 911 operator, John started performing CPR on his wife. While he was performing CPR, he became covered in his wife's blood. 
His wife, however, was dead and there was no reviving her. Once the police arrived on scene, it was wondered if there had been a burglary. Maybe it went wrong. But since the body of Susan was examined and it was so brutalized that it was obvious to officers and the medical examiner that this was a case of rage. According to an article by LifeSite News, the medical examiner determined that Susan Hamilton had died from blunt force trauma as well as strangulation by something being pulled around the neck. At first, investigators wondered if it had been the work of anti-abortionists. They were granted a permit to protest in front of John and Susan's home just that month. Maybe the anti-abortionist group had killed Susan to send a message to John himself. That theory was probable. However, it wasn't believed to be the case, and police really didn't go anywhere with that theory. That was thought to be a dead end. There was no sign of forced entry, and Susan's friends and family said that she wouldn't have let a stranger into her home. It just wasn't like her. Nothing was taken from the home, and there weren't even bloody footprints found anywhere leading away from Susan's body. And remember, she was laying in a pool of blood, so you'd think there would be some footprints if someone had fled the scene. And then the suspicion was moved to the husband, like it usually is in this case, Dr. John Hamilton. When they brought John in for questioning, during the drive to the station, John kept scraping his knuckles in the car. And police found that odd and were wondering if maybe he was trying to cover up some hand injuries. At the station, John told police during questioning that he gave Susan mouth-to-mouth -mouth when he performed CPR on her in an effort to save her life. However, none of Susan's blood was found on his face. They did, however, find traces of Susan's blood and skin on John's steering wheel in his car. There was also allegedly a blood spatter on John's shoe, and it appeared to have been made while Susan was still alive. They also found jewelry in Susan's underwear drawer, and when police questioned him about that, he said he hid it so the paramedics wouldn't steal it. During the investigation, police found out from neighbors that Susan had discovered that her husband, John, was having an affair with a topless dancer in the area. Susan had found over 10 phone calls to this dancer from John's phone. Susan had also told friends that she was considering divorcing John. Susan allegedly confronted him, but John told her that the dancer was a patient of his who was in need of antidepressants. Now, I don't know of any doctor-patient relationship where you're discussing medication through texts and phone calls, but that's just me. Maybe I don't know anything. I don't know. Anyways, John and Susan had a fight about that, and according to the prosecution, the morning of the murder, investigators also found a Valentine's card from Susan to John that read, quote, I bought this two weeks ago, so I guess maybe it doesn't seem as appropriate, but I do love you. Have a good day, Susan, end quote. And that definitely seems kind of stiff and not that of a head over heels love couple and more like a wife who's pissed off at her husband during Valentine's Day, at least in my mind. According to the LifeSite News article, there were death threats made to the Oklahoma County City District Attorney Wes Lane. And threats were made saying that he had better drop the case of Dr. John Hamilton or else he and the key witness would be killed. And thankfully, nothing seemed to come of these threats. However, it is very alarming. During the trial, prosecutors alleged that John and Susan opened cards in the morning and then a fight ensued. It turned physical. John beat and strangled his wife. He then tried to clean up with a rag, and this rag was found on scene and bagged as evidence. He then left to perform his first surgery. John then went home after the first surgery to, quote, discover the body, end quote, to the prosecution. This is when he placed the 911 call. During the trial, the public outcry was intense. No one in the neighborhood believed that the kind-hearted Dr. John Hamilton could savagely beat and strangle his wife. That was just impossible and couldn't be. 
He had many supporters who backed him. John and Susan were in love. This is impossible. During the trial, the defense argued that the prosecution jumped against John and didn't even consider the anti-abortionist group at all. John explained away the skin and blood found on the steering wheel when he said that he moved the car for the police and responders to have room to park after he called 911. The defense also brought a blood spatter expert, Tom Bevel, in, who said that the blood patterns on John seemed to be consistent with blood patterns that would be there if he was trying to save his wife. Now, this witness would end up backfiring against the defense. Tom Bevel went on to say, in a crazy Perry Mason type of move, that if when he was asked if anything was missed, he said he found something else of note. Tom Bevel said he found blood spatter inside of John's cuff, and he believed it was consistent with John bludgeoning his wife. The defense's witness ended up giving the prosecution the evidence they needed to clinch a conviction. The court went completely quiet when he made this statement, and the jury only deliberated for two hours before coming back with the guilty verdict. In an interview, John Bevel, the blood spatter witness, said, quote, Ultimately, you take an oath to tell the truth, and that overrides any allegiance I may have to my client, end quote. John Hamilton has since tried to appeal many times, but each time they've been denied, and as of now, he is still incarcerated. What do you think? Do you think John Hamilton is responsible for the death of his wife? Or were investigators set on pinning it against the husband? Who do you think is responsible for killing Susan? I hope Susan Hamilton rests in peace and her family, friends, and neighbors who loved her somehow find comfort. Being completely honest, I hate checking my mail most days. It seems like there's always just a huge pile of bills and credit card offers, hello, early 20s, and just other various junk mail that goes straight into my garbage as soon as I'm in my house. But the one thing that always stops me in my tracks is when there's a cute little envelope addressed by hand. I know that somebody somewhere has sent me a card and so now I just need to open it immediately and see what it's all about. My name is Olivia Green and I recently founded a company called The Stillwater Company. Basically what it is is just a line of greeting cards and other products that you can send to people through good old-fashioned snail mail and brighten their day a little bit. All of the designs are based around capturing the simplicity of rural living. Whether that be baby goats on my parents' farm, horses grazing in a pasture alongside the road, or just super colorful flowers in the summer. All the designs and products can be found on my website at www.welcometostillwater.com. And from there you'll be able to sort through greeting cards, note cards, and all the products. There's also actually digital files available for purchase. You can literally download them right to your computer, and from there you can use them for your own prints or products that are unique to you and your needs. So again, the website is www.welcometostillwater.com. Please feel free to contact myself directly through the website. I am always able to help you find the perfect collection that you love. Our next Bloody Valentine's case is of an Olympic athlete turned killer. Oscar Leonard Carl Pistorius was born November 22, 1986, which just happens to be my brother's birthday. He was born without fibulas or calf bones, and when he was 12 months old, he had to have both legs amputated below the knee. However, his parents immediately got him fit with prosthetics, and at six months old, he was already walking. He was the middle child of three children, and he grew up in a pretty average middle-class family. He grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa. He was a very athletic child, and he loved playing all kinds of sports in class. He didn't let the fact that he had two prosthetic legs slow him down. He excelled. He started running track in school when he was 16 years old. 
He started running competitively in high school, and he competed in the 100-meter race. Oscar was invited by a prosthetic company to Oscar, and this company manufactures the Flex Foot Cheetahs. It's a type of prosthetic that allows for jumping and running at super high speeds. Oscar won a 200-meter race wearing these Flex Foot Cheetahs by Oscar, and he received a gold medal and won a bronze medal at the 100-meter race at the 2004 Athens Paralympics. He was on his way to fame. Oscar participated in the 2012 Olympics at London, and even though he was eliminated in the semifinals, he was the first amputee athlete to actually be in the Olympics and compete, so it was a huge honor and accomplishment. He was nicknamed the Blade Runner by his friends and fans, and according to his biography, he was called, quote, the fastest man with no legs, end quote. Despite being on the road to greatness, that life would soon be cut short. The morning of Valentine's Day 2013, Oscar's neighbor, Michelle Berger, said she heard a woman screaming, she heard gunshots, and she heard a man calling for help three distinct times. Michelle later testified to this in court. Reva Steenkamp, Oscar's girlfriend, was found shot to death in his apartment in the early morning. One of the first responders on scene was actually a neighbor who was a doctor, Johann Stipp. He had heard the yelling and the gunshots, and when he went to the house to investigate... He found Oscar slumped over Reva's body. Johan did a jawlift maneuver to try and open her airway, and all the while, he later testified that Oscar was crying and hysterical in the background. He begged Johan and God to save Reva. However, the effort was in vain because sadly, Reva Steenkamp was dead and there was no reviving her. Reva was born August 19, 1983, to parents Barry Steenkamp, who was a professional horse trainer, and her mother, June. She was born in Cape Town and had two older half-siblings, Adam and Simone, from her parents' previous marriages. She attended St. Dominic's Priory School in Port Elizabeth and eventually graduated with a Bachelor of Law degree in 2005. After Reva graduated, she worked as a paralegal and also worked as a model. She had an interest in modeling from a young age and she started modeling at only 14. As she got older, she had many modeling gigs and she rose in the industry. She even became the first face of Avon Cosmetics in South Africa. Reva had appearances in TV commercials and was even scheduled to be on a reality TV show at the time of her death. Like her father, she had a passion for horses and she was an avid horseback rider until she broke her back from a fall when she was in her 20s. She had to learn to walk again from this. She was a strong and powerful woman, however, and regained complete control over her injury and her life and soon became a regular A-list guest at all the posh events and red carpet events in Johannesburg. Reva Streamcamp started dating Oscar Pistorius in November 2012. Once the investigation began to Reva's death, investigators immediately started looking at Oscar as the suspect. Oscar was later arrested for premeditated first-degree murder. He would later claim in court that he accidentally killed Reva because he thought that she was an intruder. He told a story of hearing someone in his home, and at the time he wasn't wearing his prosthetic legs. Oscar said that he felt vulnerable and more frightened, and so he shot the intruder who was supposedly hiding in the locker bathroom door. He shot the intruder through the door. And of course, we know that that intruder was Reva. However, prosecutors alleged that Reva and Oscar were arguing before the shooting began. Reva ran into the bathroom to hide from Oscar, and then Oscar shot her through the door out of rage. So Oscar was facing the murder charge, and he was also facing a firearms charge. March 3rd, 2014, his trial began. 
The toilet that was in the couple's home was riddled with bullets, and the cricket bat that Oscar used to bash in the bathroom door was brought in as evidence. There was a forensic investigator who got down on his knees and started swinging the bat to show the court exactly what Oscar had done that night, and to show the court that he was not wearing his prosthetics, even though Oscar claimed he was. According to the Guardian article, the prosecution at first claimed that Oscar didn't have his prosthetics, but they later changed that theory. The Guardian article, who I will link in the sources, has many, many articles about the court proceedings to this case. So if you want a deeper court dive, for sure, check out their articles. There was one instance that I read where the prosecution was flipping through the computer's images of the case. And there was a big screen in front of the courtroom when accidentally they showed a picture of Reva's body after she passed away that they had in their possession for evidence. And it was obviously super upsetting to Reva's family, friends, and, and the, her supporters that were there. And even Oscar himself vomited right there in the courtroom and started sobbing uncontrollably. The defense presented a case that after Oscar fired in the bathroom and Oscar realized that he hit Reva and that it wasn't an intruder, he then put his prosthetic on, tried to kick the door down to get in and help her. But when he couldn't do that, he instead, that's when he hit the door with the bat to try to break it down and try to get in and help her. Oscar took the stand to defend himself, and he also apologized to Reva's family, who was present at the trial. Oscar even started crying during his testimony, but the audience was not bothered by it. According to the LA Times, the defense attorney brought up a professional that stated that Oscar suffered from a generalized anxiety disorder. The judge called for a delay of the trial so that Oscar could be evaluated. He was declared to not suffer with mental health problems, so the trial went back on. The judge declared Oscar not guilty of murder on September 11th. However, by October, he was found guilty of culpable homicide and sentenced to jail for five years. Now, I didn't know what culpable homicide was, so I looked it up, and it means that the accused person killed someone through wrongful conduct. However, it wasn't intentional or reckless, so it's basically manslaughter. Oscar was released from jail October 19th, 2015, and he was allowed to be under house arrest, but he had to be under supervision for five years. The South African High Appeals Court, however, ruled that Oscar Pistorius was guilty of the first-degree murder of Reba. He was only going to serve six years through this conviction. The South Africa Supreme Court was not pleased with this length of six years for a murder charge, and instead, the Supreme Court handed down a new sentence of 13 years and five months. Recently, Oscar came into the news again because he got into a prison altercation over one of the phones, according to the Department of Correctional Services. There's a movie about him, Oscar Pistorius, the Blade Runner Killer. This movie has controversy throughout because both sides of the family have spoken out against this movie and have also threatened legal action. I just want to say rest in peace to Reva Steenkamp, and I'm so, so sorry to her loved ones who have to come face-to-face and revisit their loss every single Valentine's Day. It's just a sad, horrible case. So that's the end of the Blade Runner Killer. Oscar Pistorius is currently sitting in jail now, and I want to know what you think. Do you think he's guilty? Was it accidental or intentional? Let me know your thoughts. Our third Valentine's case that I'm going to be covering is an unsolved case of two young lovers who went to a Valentine's Day dance, left the dance to go on a walk, and were never seen alive again. Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain were two young lovebirds in every sense of the word. They were a beautiful couple, and looking at pictures of them, they just looked like they were so happy, and they both had really infectious smiles. Patricia was only 20 years old, and she was a med student at Watts Hospital in Durham, North Carolina, and Jesse was only 19 and a freshman at the North Carolina State University. 
He was voted most likely to succeed and was handsome and the popular kid in school. He and Patricia were high school sweethearts and still had a strong relationship even after high school and into college. They both had bright futures and their whole lives ahead of them until it all ended abruptly February 12th, two days before Valentine's Day, 1971. The night of their murder, Jesse brought the car that he shared with his brother to go pick up Patricia for their date. It wasn't actually his day to take the car because they took turns who got to drive the car, but Jesse tried to convince his brother to switch with him so that he could have the car that night to take Patricia to the dance, and his brother let him take it. The dance was at the Watts Hospital in Durham, the same place where Patricia worked. The couple left the dance at 11.30 and went to Patricia's dorm to sign her out. The dorm had a curfew of 1 a.m., so they signed her out so that they could be away together for just a little bit before curfew was up. After signing each other out, they went to a private location to be together. They went near the now Crossdale neighborhood down a cul-de-sac, and at this time, this cul-de-sac wasn't finished, and it didn't have any houses up. It was a secluded area, and it was known at the time to be a lover's lane. According to an article I read written by Kristen Rachel, this lover's lane was well known by med students, and there was kind of an unwritten rule that if one couple was there before you, you had to move on to another spot. And some couples even had their own designated spots. It was a very well-known site. When Patricia didn't come back the next morning, immediately her roommates were concerned. Because this is very unlike Patricia. She was normally responsible, and she was always brought back by curfew. This just wasn't like her. And it wasn't really like Jesse either. He never made her do anything that she wasn't uncomfortable with. And so the roommates believed that they were both in danger. So there was immediately a search for them. Jesse's car was found at this location in the lover's lane, and their coats were locked inside of the car, but there was no sign of the couple. For 13 days, police searched and searched for Patricia and Jesse, until finally a surveyor who was working in a wooded area found what he thought was a mannequin in the woods. However, he quickly realized that it wasn't a mannequin, but a human body. The police were called, and immediately the bodies of Patricia and Jesse were identified that day. Patricia and Jesse were found dead and tied to a tree February 25th. The scene that played out before investigators was sick and maniacal and truly something out of a horror movie. Patricia and Jesse had been tied with their hands behind their back to a tree. They had rope around their heads and necks, and it was believed that that's how they were secured to that tree. They were found to have been cruelly strangled, brought back, revived, strangled again, and brought back multiple times in a sadistic torture. Patricia had injuries that looked to be consistent with being beaten, stomped, and kicked. There was no evidence of sexual assault on either Patricia or Jesse, though, thankfully. It wasn't a robbery gone wrong because they still had their wallets, a ring, and a watch. When the medical examiner looked at the bodies, the fingerprints were taken, and when they were examined, they didn't find any skin under Patricia's fingernails. There was an issue with the police departments working together because the bodies were found along another popular lover's lane, on the county line between Georgia County and Durham. So that means multiple agencies from different counties, including the SBI and the FBI, were involved. And sometimes that can be good getting brains together on one case, but in this case, no one was pooling their information. Multiple investigators would keep their findings to themselves and information to themselves, and this would just end up hurting the case. Now, for suspects, there were many people interviewed and investigated in this case. Police took polygraphs, and some passed while others failed by a mile. One of the people who was given the polygraph and failed was a doctor. This doctor worked at the same hospital that Patricia worked at. The doctor failed the polygraph and then refused to cooperate with the police, placing the suspicion squarely on him. 
Now, we don't know this doctor's name, but he would continue to be the main focus for many, many years. However, the case quickly grew cold with no evidence and no more leads into this doctor. Thankfully, the case was revived in 2014. Tim Horn and fellow detective Don Hunter were combing through cold cases, and they registered this case. Out of all the people investigated, no one stuck out more than that doctor Patricia worked with, and he was still alive. Tim Horn believes that he can solve this case using something that's been cracking cases open left and right all over the globe, DNA. According to the article by Kristen Rachel, NVAC is a wet vacuum DNA collection system that can extract DNA from difficult places, like the knotted rope used to tie up and strangle Jesse and Patricia. DNA has been solving so many high-profile crime cases. There's only 80 MVAC DNA collection machines in the world, but there is one in North Carolina, and that's the one Tim Horn is looking to utilize. Tim Horn remains hopeful that his case will be solved. The last article I read was in 2020, so I'm really hoping more info can be found and that Jesse and Patricia can get justice. If you want more details on this case, I know I did a super quick overview please, please go listen to the podcast, The Long Dance. It's eight episodes long and hosted by Eric and Drew. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. These two guys do a tremendous job diving into this case, and the entire podcast is just one whole dive into this case. (sighs) I'm praying one day we can get justice for Jesse and Patricia and their families. If we get any updates on this open and active case, I'll be sure to share them here. For our last Bloody Valentine's case of the day, let's dive into Baptist missionary Nathan Luthold. Now, a cousin of mine actually suggested this episode, and I was excited to tell her that, dude, I already got it. It's on my list, and I'll be covering it today. It's super fun when people suggest episodes, and I tell them, yeah, I got it. It's on the way, and it's just fun. It's a lot of fun. So we open up our fourth and final Valentine's case of the day with Nathan Luthold. This case takes place on Valentine's Day 2013, which is the same day, same year as when Oscar Pistorius killed his girlfriend, Reba, in South Africa. So around the globe, now we are in Illinois, and another murder is taking place. Nathan Luthold would be hiding in a closet in his parents' home in Peoria, Illinois, where they were living at the time. He was hiding in the closet because he was waiting for his wife to return home. When she arrived, he exited the closet, picked a fight with her, and then coldly lifted a gun to her head and killed her with a 40 caliber Glock. Instead of calling 911 and confessing to his crimes immediately, Nathan instead called 911 and said that there had been a break-in and a robbery. Before police arrived, he started trashing the home to stage the robbery and try and fool police. However, within only three hours, police arrested Nathan because they didn't think he was acting right, all things considered. Upon further investigation, they found that Nathan had Googled hitting someone over the head to knock them out, how to muffle a gun, lethal injection, as well as a period of many other things. He also had a mistress. Let's back up a bit. The Luthals were a Baptist missionary family, and they traveled beyond the United States to witness to people about God. On their European missions trip, they went to Lithuania. While they were there, the family met a young girl named Anya and her family. They befriended Anya, and they were all very close for many years. The Luthals eventually offered to pay Anya and her family's way to come to the United States and become a citizen. 
Now, at this time, Anya was only 18 when she came to the United States, and Nathan Luthal became her sponsor. He did more than just sponsor her, however. Nathan gave Anya a bank account that was joint with his personal account, and he would regularly give Anya money. He also paid for Anya's school bills and even rent for a few years before his wife's murder. Now, at first, this seems kind of like an amazing story, right, of a family being so kind and helpful, helping this young Lithuanian woman and her family come to the States, but it turned dark quickly. The relationship turned from platonic to sexual and quick. Nathan and Anya were sleeping together behind Denise's back. The day of the murder, at about 12.15 in the afternoon, Denise kissed her four-year-old daughter goodbye and dropped her off at kindergarten. Nathan later would go pick her pick the daughter up at the end of the day at this kindergarten. Now, when Nathan and his daughter returned home, Nathan later told police that he was immediately alerted to the condition of the house and he noticed something was off. The garage door had been left open and there was broken glass on the ground. Nathan called police and Officer Lithicum responded to the dispatch and met Nathan at his home. When Officer Lithicum proceeded into the house, he observed many things that struck out to him as odd. First off, there was no footprint in the mud by the house, and you'd think someone would look around for a bit to decide the best way to get into a home. Officer Linthicum and another officer, Officer Campus, then went inside by going through the broken garage door into the kitchen. In his testimony, Officer Linthicum said that the kitchen looked odd because normally a robber doesn't usually bother with the kitchen. But if they do start in the kitchen, then they'll throw the cabinet doors out quickly and it would just be a mess. However, in this case, the cabinet doors had been pulled out and neatly set on the floor. As they advanced further into the room, they noticed that the family's electronics were still there, which is, again, something else unusual. The robber hadn't taken any of those things. As they went down the hallway of the home, they discovered Denise's body lying face down. She was covered in blood, and by her head there was an empty shell casing, and underneath her head were her car keys. Officers immediately left the home, called it in so the home could be preserved as a crime scene. While all this was going on, Nathan never approached officers asking them what happened or even to ask if his wife was okay. Officers soon took Nathan in for questioning and he was interviewed by officers for six hours by the Peoria police. While they were investigating the home for evidence, they found a day planner with a note on the nightstand by the couple's bed. It appeared to have been from Denise to Nathan. And it's a little long, but I want to read it to you guys to strap in. According to court documents on this case, the note said, quote, What on earth could you possibly be thinking? I can't imagine anything you could tell me that would hurt worse than what you are doing to me right now, every day. I really don't think there is anything that I have done or not done that would cause me to deserve this. I've tried to please you for 17 years and never succeeded. I've never been good enough, never done enough. I know that you want me dead. I'm not stupid. I suppose it will confirm my worthlessness to you when I write that I am not brave enough to do that job to you. And now, all of a sudden, you are taking me with you places? What is that about? Maybe you think I don't feel bad enough. You act like you are somehow noble because you won't tell me why you are doing this. It makes me sick. I've been willing at any time to fall in love with you again, but you reject me every time. I wish I could hate you. I've tried to hate you because I thought that would make it easier. I wish it wouldn't hurt so bad. Of course, I couldn't do it, so I failed at that too. I've been without pride. I've humiliated myself to try to win something that belongs to me. You defraud me, and you don't seem to care. Well, 
I quit. I'm not going to try to please you anymore. I will do what I have to do, but no more of that game. You want to humiliate me by running around with a 20-year-old? Fine. I won't grovel. If I haven't pleased you in 17 years, nothing I do now will please you. And I refuse to leave my children just because you have decided to do this to me. You are the only person who thinks I am a bad mother. Complete strangers compliment me on them, so I will not join you in your obsession with perfection. I am the same person I have always been. I am not weaker and in many ways stronger. I refuse to play to your perfectionism in that too. I have been negligent and criticisms have kept going. But now this? How long? How long are you going to do this to me? Oh yeah, until I break. That's what you said, isn't it? Well, happy waiting, end quote. So, of course, this letter from Denise to Nathan further plants suspicion on Nathan, as well as kicks the robber theory out to the curb. The robber theory is not believed because they found Denise's purse with cash in it in the couple's bedroom. So, the robber didn't take the electronics. He set all the kitchen uh, cabinets out nicely, and he didn't even take the cash or the keys to the car. While he was in custody, Nathan used his one phone call to phone his father. He seemed very disturbed by the fact that the case was trending on Facebook and was on the news. And he also worried about what his pastor would think when he found out. After hanging up with his father and after more interrogation, Nathan requested to call his mistress, Anya. Later, when the case would be brought to trial, a witness named Diane Parrish would testify that she saw someone in a black hooded sweatshirt walking along the road against traffic at about 12.20 during the day. Now, this is interesting because investigators found this same black hooded sweatshirt in the home while they were doing their investigation. Diane Parrish stated that it wasn't unusual for people to be walking down that road, but it was unusual to see a grown man taking a walk in the middle of the day. Furthermore, it's cold in Illinois in February. I should know. I live in Wisconsin. And the man was only wearing that black sweatshirt. She grew suspicious of him, and so she and her husband, as they were driving by, really focused in on him to get a good look. And in court, she identified the man that she saw that day as Nathan Luthold. Another witness for the prosecution was none other than Anya herself. With the help of an interpreter, she finally agreed to give her testimony in return for immunity if she would just go against Nathan. She told the court that she and Nathan started having an affair around 2010. And Nathan and her would meet in hotels and take trips together to the Five Senses Spa in Peoria. Nathan would pay for Anya to get whatever services she wanted at the spa. They also took a trip to Europe together without Denise or the children. They rented a luxury apartment in Chicago where they stayed for six days. They went horseback riding together and Anya was just smitten with the older man, Nathan. According to court documents, on February 14, 2013, Anya spoke with Nathan multiple times that day and also texted back and forth. At 3 p.m. on that same day, Nathan sent Anya a text telling her that the police believed that a burglary or a robbery had occurred at the home. Anya texted back the word, interesting, with a smiley face emoji. That kind of just shows that, in my mind at least, she kind of implicated herself like she knows that it's not a robbery if that makes sense but either way she's testing for the prosecution in exchange for immunity so really what can they do it's kind of like they they can't get both of them so why not just try to get the bigger fish in the prosecution's mind I bet that's what's going on Nathan and his father went under scrutiny again during this trial because it was found out according to an article in the journal star 
Nathan Luthold's parents were paying for Anya's court bills, and they were using Nathan's children's funds to do so. So paying for the mistress's court bills with his own children's funds. Just wow. If the media didn't have a field day with his story before now, they sure did at this point. An inmate at the Peoria County Jail testified in court that Nathan bragged to him about killing his wife for a present to his mistress on Valentine's Day. He allegedly said he didn't want to tip his wife off, so he gave her a present in the morning and then killed her later in the day. Finally, it was time for jury deliberations. They deliberated for only two hours before returning with a guilty verdict for Nathan Luthold. Immediately after, Nathan sought a new trial, but that was denied, and Nathan was sentenced to 80 years to prison for his wife Denise's murder, and he would be serving that term in the Illinois Department of Corrections. I know this is a shorter case, but RIP to Denise Luthold. My heart goes out to her and to her family, her three children, who are now growing up without a mother and without a father. And Valentine's Day isn't a happy day for them. It's, it's just a day that opens old wounds. And it makes me so angry how Nathan hid behind the good Bible-believing Baptist minister status. And he used that as a cover to be unfaithful to his wife. It's just so hypocritical and disgusting. And I just feel so awful for Denise. Well, that's the end of our bloody Valentine's Day episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. I'll see you again next week with a brand new case. This is the last week to enter the sweatshirt giveaway, so make sure you do that if you haven't already. If you have any case suggestions, email us at iamaddictedtocrime at gmail.com, and maybe I'll talk about it at a later episode. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Addicted to Crime Podcast, and check out our website with our source material at addictedtocrime.org. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Hug your loved ones. Happy Valentine's Day, and stay safe.